There was a student some time ago, whenever I would teach in the youth group, he would on occasion come up to me and say, great passage, Brandon. <laughs> and that was, that was his way of saying good message, but he, he somehow spun it, I thought, a very good way. Great passage. And what I realized is he would say, you know, he was, he was complimenting the passage of scripture I was teaching on. Um, and so it's sort of like, well, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> did I not do a good job? Um, but that's sort of what we have tonight is we have a great passage And so sometimes we hear messages and we're like, that really just stirred up my heart. And more often than not, I will guarantee, like maybe more often than not, um, it's because you're hearing a great piece of scripture and that's what's stirring up your heart. And by God's grace, hopefully the speaker and the teacher can be as invisible as possible and let this passage do its own work and its own power. And that's what I hope we can leave tonight and say is great passage, you know? Um, so hopefully I can do a good job on the message and not mess the passage up. But tonight, (laughs) tonight we have the great passage, uh, so much so that, um, someone actually came up just a second ago and said that I'm teaching the very most important piece of scripture in all the Bible. So no pressure. So (laughs) it was, um, we're all very aware now where we're at, right? So last week we hit chapter 13, the love chapter, which is one of the favorite passages. It's beautiful. It's a description of love. A lot of couples choose to have it read at their wedding. Um, we memorize it. We try to practice it. It's a, that's, that's one that, um, you can mess up because everyone has their own preferences about it. But now we come to, um, maybe not a favorite. It's not maybe one we always go to in our devotional readings, but it is definitely important. And this is the resurrection of, um, actually when we say resurrection, we often quickly want to say the resurrection of the son of God, of Jesus. But Paul talks more about the resurrection of all of God's people. That's what this chapter is about. It's about the general, as it's often called, the general resurrection. The one that all of God's people will participate in at the end of history. Jesus happened to do it ahead of all of us. Just to say, if you doubt, I did it first. You will follow in my footsteps. So that's what Paul brings together here tonight. Interesting is that this is the end of the Corinthian letter. And in many ways, this seems to be the climax. Paul is unleashing all kinds of arguments for the resurrection here. And it's as if he wants to say this whole theme of oneness I've been calling the church together into. This whole concept of coming together and realizing that we believe in one message. We're building on one foundation. We have one love. We, we discipline each other with one law. There's one marriage. We have uh, one table that we share the Lord's Supper at. We have one body. There's one virtue. And it all seems to culminate right here in this passage that to him, this resurrection is supposed to be the staple to our oneness. And honestly, I have been um, grappling with what exactly that means. And I think, I don't know. (laughs) But um, one thing is certain is that the gospel is the core of our oneness that confession of the gospel that we share. So tonight we're looking at our final installment of one. It's one gospel. Paul brings the closure. Listen, we need to be one because we believe in one gospel. And at the heart of this gospel 
is the resurrection of Jesus and of his people who will do likewise at the end of history. So let's read verses 1 through 12 in which Paul, 1 through 11, in which Paul is going to talk about the gospel. And then the rest of the chapter is all about the specific part of the gospel that he finds most important being the resurrection. So let's go. Verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you when you received, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is this gospel he's talking about? It begins in verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, Paul's saying, I did not invent this. I received this. This was passed down to me. How so? Passed down from Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the rest of the church. In Paul's case, he would often talk about in his letters how he was actually um, receiving all of the gospel from Jesus himself. That he was an unusual apostle. Not one of the twelve that followed Jesus on earth, but one who was visited by Jesus much later. And so Paul is going to, he's letting him know, this isn't from me. This isn't man-made. I received this from the one who commissioned me to be the, the, the teacher of the church. So, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And consequently, that he was buried so first, Christ died for our sins. Um, and then the part that he was buried, that's just to talk about the totality of his death. This wasn't a fainting. This wasn't a metaphor. This wasn't a swoon. Um, this was a legitimate death in which he had to be buried for three days. So Paul, first of all, first off says that it's for our sins that he went to the cross. And then second part of the gospel, that, this is uh, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. So first, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was really dead and buried. Second, he raised from the dead on the third day. So he was dead a good time. Couldn't just fake it that long or hold your breath that long. (laughs) As some of the strange theories out there are proposing. Um, And then he also made appearances. So here you have two interesting points about the resurrection. One, he was dead for three days before he rose, which would seem to debunk any arguments from, which is popular even to this day, that the resurrection is simply a metaphor or a parable for what God wants to do in our hearts. We are born dead in sin and that he wants to raise us up to life. Now, that's not a wrong concept at all. That's 100% biblical. That's Paul's message in Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but the love of God has raised you up to be seated with him. That's Paul's theology. But (laughs) the resurrection is not merely a metaphor for what we are doing spiritually with God. It was a physical event in which Jesus was dead and came back to life. 
Now, the three days that he rose after three days debunks the idea that this is just some sort of a spiritual resurrection. Because if it was a spiritual resurrection, just in which his spirit lived on, why did he need three days to wait for that to happen? The spirit would have instantly just continued. So in Paul's mind, the three days is big because the three days suggest that there is a physical death and that there is a physical resurrection. And coupled with the fact that this um, resurrection was seeable, engageable, you could have a conversation with this resurrection appearance. You could touch it. He appeared to people. So this wasn't just a spirit. This wasn't just a vision. This wasn't just people going crazy and hallucinating. There was a physical bodily appearance of Jesus. Uh, Peter saw him. So Paul's basically going to say, now, if you don't believe me, just, just ask. Here's, here's a list of people you can talk to. Peter saw him. The 12 saw him. For six, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Pretty hard for everybody to have a vision at the same time. Um, the exact, oh, we saw Jesus in a vision. Like, well, no, he actually appeared. That's how five people can see him at the same time. So go ask any of those. Most of them are still alive. So just, just go call them up. Go Facebook them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, God has been so gracious to me to give me this position to share about unto people. I who persecuted him and am far from worthy, his grace has made me what I am. And I am determined to make sure that this grace wasn't given to me in vain. Okay? That God didn't say, here, Paul, you're forgiven. Go share my word. And Paul's like, cool, thanks. And he's kind of like half-heartedly doing it and wasting his time in another way. No, Paul's like, I am determined that this grace wasn't poured out upon me in vain. Therefore, he continues, I labored. On the contrary, I labored harder than any of them. Any other apostle, Paul is saying, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So, man, Paul is determined to make his life count that God did not make a mistake in picking me. And I wonder where the church's attitude in that regard is today. That Paul realizes the grace of God has given him power to go forward and work hard to preach the gospel. So that's the gospel we see. Twofold. The death of Jesus for our sins and the resurrection on the third day. Now, when you hear one gospel, okay, Paul's going to bring the church together in one gospel. I feel as though, at least the way I've grown up in the church what I would instantly expect the preacher to do or the scriptures to say would be, all right, so let's talk about the cross and let's talk about what it means and let's talk about the death of the Son of God and let's talk about the penalty that was put upon him there. I would immediately equate one gospel with the cross. But Paul doesn't do this. Yes, the cross is part of the gospel, but to Paul... The good news, which gospel means good news, the good news is that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, in some ways, 
the crucifixion of Jesus is bad news. Think about it. That God was killed on a cross by his creation. Is that good news? That's horrible news. The story went so far south that the creation didn't just rebel against his wishes. It killed him. My sin there on him. This was ugly. This was bad news. But that wasn't the end. He, excuse me, Dr. Bravo, I'm sorry. That wasn't the end. But he rose, which made it good news. So that now what we do is we look in retrospect upon the cross and we say, okay, we can understand how it became good news because my sin has been paid for. But man, there was nothing beautiful about the death. There was nothing rejoicing. People were sorrowing. Jesus was praying to get out of it. This was bad news. This was the darkest day of history. And so the good news is that Jesus was resurrected However, the bad news continues in verse 12, because there are deniers and there are always are deniers. There are deniers in the church. There are deniers in Corinth. And this is what they're saying. So verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So you're part of the church. You've clearly embraced the one gospel. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead three days later. You affirm that apparently, but you are rejecting the resurrection of us. What does this mean? Like, how is that possible? Paul seems to think you don't get it. One gospel means not different things for Jesus and us. It means it's all one. We are all going to become like Jesus. We're all going to be raised like him. So what do you guys mean by, well, yeah, we believe in all that, but we deny the resurrection of all flesh. Paul doesn't spell out what they exactly believe. He just says that there are deniers. So they could be denying, one, the possibility of resurrection. Is it possible that a dead human being can come back to life? I don't think so. So that could be the denial. Um, the denial could be the timing of the resurrection. Uh, there are some beliefs out there that the Corinthians adopted Roman eschatology. Huh? <laughs> Roman eschatology is simply the Roman worldview that they believed Caesar has brought the world to its golden age. He is the king of kings. He rules over many nations. And they even had what was called the, the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. And there was prosperity. And the, every, this was the best times the world has ever seen. And the, the poets and um, all the scribes of Caesar would go out and fill the world with propaganda. In fact, through inscriptions, we've learned that the word used to announce what Caesar has done was gospel. That was the word that Rome used to talk about Caesar's accomplishments. This is the gospel. Caesar is the Lord of Lords. He has brought peace and prosperity. So when Paul is talking about the gospel, he's saying, well, actually, uh, let's think about it differently. It's not Caesar, it's Jesus. Um, so the timing of the gospel could be what they're denying here. The Romans believed that, okay, we have reached the future age. This is the golden, this is the dawn of the golden age of humanity. And Caesar is the one leading it. 
And so the Corinthians coming out of paganism and into the church could be adopting this idea into Christianity. Well, yes, uh, we've already arrived. We're all already resurrected. There's no future resurrection whatsoever. And um, that may be why some of them that may have explained some of their behavior that Paul was um, ranting against throughout the book. So the thought that the resurrection has already happened, um, that could be what they're saying. Or third, the deniers are saying, uh, they're, they're, they're denying the nature of the resurrection. And this, to me, makes sense culturally and contextually here. That they're denying the nature. What do I mean? Uh, they, they, they don't deny that there will be life after death. They see that, they understand that. But they deny the nature of the resurrection. In other words, they deny that the resurrection of the believers will be a bodily resurrection. They deny that there is any place for the body in God's future. Um, Culturally, this fits with some of the Greek philosophy uh, promoted mostly by Plato, who expanded the thought that the flesh is bad and the body is actually an imprisonment of a person's soul. And all the soul wants is to be released from the body and then it's free and it will be happy. It will be unrestricted. And so the Greeks had a worldview that was very much anti-body and anti-flesh and were looking forward to an, a non-fleshly existence, a non-material existence. That to them was the ideal. But the gospel is very, 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 very different. Because if we believe, and this goes all the way to the beginning, if we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then he's the God of materialism. Not, I own a lot of possessions, but material. He loves matter. He loves physicalness. He made this and said it was good. Um, and then this material went wrong when sin entered the world. So God solved it, not by some spiritual hocus pocus trick, but by becoming the creation himself, by putting on a body himself and entering into the creation. We call that incarnation. We celebrate that at Christmas. So creation, incarnation, and then logically, if we believe these things, the resurrection is going to follow as the climatic solution to the material problem. Not that God's going to say, let's get rid of all of it, but let's fix all of it. The resurrection is about fixing the material, fixing our bodies, making them, um, well, we'll talk about this in a bit, making them better. So, so it could be that the deniers are saying, uh, yes, resurrection, great, but not, not a bodily resurrection, no physical stuff. We're looking for this floaty, loosey-goosey, cloudy heaven thing. And Paul's like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> and so now we're going to see him talk an awful lot about the resurrection of Jesus, modeling what we will be resurrected as. And he's going to talk about a physical, bodily resurrection. Okay? Does it make sense? Like, like body, like you have a body right now. How much it's going to be just like these bodies is anybody's guess but it will be bodily. And that's going to be Paul's argument. So the deniers have said their say, Paul is now going to address them and tell them this is why the resurrection matters. It matters because verse 13, this is why he's going to fight for it for up to 58 verses. (laughs) But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if we don't rise from the dead, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. We are one in the same. God has the same plan here for us. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Everything you believe is stupid. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So again, if we don't rise from the dead at the end of time, then Christ didn't rise from the end, then Christ didn't rise from the dead, and our gospel is completely lie, it's a lie and it's false. All of it, the creation, the incarnation, and the hope that we have that we're looking forward to. All that's a lie, he's saying. If we will not be resurrected. 4 verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, he's repeating himself. So verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And that's a problem. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, most to be pitied. So if the deniers have their way and there's no future resurrection of our bodies, then our faith means nothing. We are putting our faith in a God who was faithless. Here's the idea. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then um, we are believing somebody who God allowed to die and said, huh, he deserved it. That's what we're saying. The Jewish rulers, the Roman rulers, conspired on that fateful Passover date to crucify Jesus. And God allows this to happen. The world had their say. Jesus came to the trial before Pilate, Roman governor, and before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, the Jewish heads. Jesus was tried before them and the world viewed, the world voted him guilty and deserving of death. So he died. But in the resurrection, as Jesus comes out of the grave, God is saying, well, let me have my say. You didn't consult the judge of the earth. And so when Jesus comes out of the grave, God is saying, nice try, but I declare him innocent. He was not worthy of death in my eyes. He was the rightful king of this earth. And he is the, he's my son. I'm raising him. So God was faithful to fulfill in Jesus the plan he had for him. The world tried to cut it off, tried to stop God's plan in Jesus. Succeeded temporarily. <laughs> and then God saw that it would make it to the end. God was faithful to this mission. And if God was not faithful in raising Jesus, then he would be a faithless God who didn't hold up to his promises. And we would be putting our faith in a faithless God and our faith would therefore be futile. That's part of the big idea. So the resurrection is key to our faith that we can now trust God because he upheld every single promise. And it was demonstrated gloriously when he upheld his promise to his own son and raised him from the dead. God steps in for his people. When the world has had their say, God gets the last word. That's our faith in the resurrection. 
Um, notice also that it talks about your sins. You'll still be in your sins. Uh, it's interesting here is that there is, in Paul's mind, the cross um, may have carried our sins, but they were actually forgiven at the resurrection. If you go to Romans chapter 4, you'll actually see him state this very clearly. In uh, Romans 4 verse 25, Paul says this. Jesus, Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions. So our sin put him on the cross and raised for our justification, which is a word we'll get to when we get to Romans. But justification is a very fancy word for saying forgiven. Um, Jesus was put on the cross because of our sins, but raised for the removal of our sins. So in other words, okay, he goes to the cross because of my sin. It's on him and he dies because that's what sin does is it leads you to death. And if he had stayed dead, then, well, our sins still exist. Our sins conquered him in killing him. The sin won. But by coming out of the grave and raising from the dead, it said that, nope, actually Jesus conquered our sin because he conquered the death of our sin. And as he comes out, it was the announcement that your sins are gone. They're forgiven. They were dealt with. Jesus was able to handle them. They didn't conquer him. He conquered them. Your sins are erased. And a picture in the Old Testament is when the high priest once a year would go into the, you might remember this, the Day of Atonement. He'd go into the tabernacle and bring an offering to forgive the sins of the entire nation. And um, the high priest would go in. The one time of the year, he'd go into the very Holy of Holies behind this big, thick curtain. If you went in there any other time, you died. He went in there this one time of the year with a rope tied around his ankle in case something bad happened. Um, And the entire nation waited in suspense as he offered the offering to God for forgiveness. If the high priest never came out, and apparently things are not doing very well between Israel and God. But when the high priest came out, it means that God accepted the offering. And when he came out of the tabernacle and the audience saw him, they would erupt in applause that, yay, we're forgiven. Uh, God has looked over our transgressions for this year. And this is what Jesus does when he comes out of the grave. Is it's, the, it's the celestial, the cosmic celebration that the sins of the universe have been dealt with. And that's, I can imagine what it sounded like. You know, a co- like, It was very silent on earth. It's almost a whisper. Hey, Jesus resurrected. And it sort of slowly spread, right? Um, God never blasted a trumpet. Here I am. <laughs> it was very silent. You wonder, what what did the universe sound like, the unheard universe behind all of this? The spiritual forces. It must have been an explosion of celebration. And so that's the importance there on our sins. So now in verse 20, uh, Paul's going to go into now um, the second reason. The resurrection is, is the key to our faith, we just saw. Second reason, the resurrection is key to conquering the last enemy standing between God and the kingdom that we will all inherit. There's one enemy yet to be conquered. Uh, And this is sort of where you got to use, Paul is very into this has been conquered, hasn't been conquered sort of talking. Uh, You'll see what I mean. It's death. Death is the enemy. So the resurrection is the ultimate weapon against death. 
So verse 20 to 28 is where we see this. So verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, of all those who are dead, he's the first fruits. So this is a harvest image. Okay. You have a harvest full of, let's say barley harvest full of barley. Um, the first fruits would be the very first crops that you would take out of that. And then when you would see the first fruits, someone gives you something like, these are my first fruits. You would know that that's not his entire harvest. You know that there is a whole field of barley behind those first fruits that he's giving you. That's the idea, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first fruits. There is a whole field more to be harvested after him. That field is us. Jesus is the first fruits. So that's what he's saying there, that he is the first of many who will be raised from the dead. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, by Adam, death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so Adam gave us death, yay Adam. Jesus gave us resurrection, yay Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But, verse 23, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, which we discussed already. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's us, the rest of the field. So Christ was first. Has he resurrected? Yes. Step one is accomplished. We're waiting for step two, his return in which we get to experience entering into a new body, resurrection. Then after we are raised, verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom, this is Jesus. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So there's a sense in which Paul sees that Jesus is ruling. What is he ruling? He's ruling the church right now. And that when he returns, um, he's going to conquer He's going to give this to the father and the father will make, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's when every single enemy is put down. So verse 26, this is where we find the last enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, that's Psalm 8, by the way, it's a quote. It is plain that he expected who it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjected under him. So when all things are subjected to him, when the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So there we have Paul's very wordy way of saying that death is the final enemy in which must be conquered. Now, So Jesus is ruling over the church, but before this kingdom can be given to God and become the final kingdom that we're all looking forward to and that there are parables and promises of throughout scripture, before he can give it to God, the whole kingdom, um, there's one thing standing in the way and it's death. Now, Jesus has conquered death. We see that in his resurrection, death is defeated. But death is still running around. 
And sadly, some of us have experienced death more recently than later. And we know very much so that death is an enemy. Death is an evil on this planet. It is not nice. Even if we know where people are going when they die, it is still an enemy. It was never intended on this earth. And it ravages lives. In fact, we are all dying. Um, Some of us feel the effects of that process more than others. You know, some of you wish the seats were a little softer. You're feeling death sting. It's slowly working its way through you. Don't worry. You can go to bed tonight. You may wake up tomorrow. I hope. But death, death was not intended. It is an invasion upon God's plan for the earth and humanity. And of course, we know this. We see this in the garden. And of course, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are behind Paul's whole thinking in this process as he talks about death and Adam. Um, but we know in Genesis that Adam and Eve ate from the tree that they were not to eat. And God said that in the day you do this, which it wasn't really just about you ate the wrong diet and God was upset and had a temper tantrum. It was an act of rebellion against the king's rules. And an act of rebellion is an act of independence, an act that says, I don't need you as king. We'll be our own king. Thank you very much. That's what happened. And God said that in the day you decide to divorce yourself from my kingship and become your own little kings, the day you choose to do that, you will surely die. And this is what we now have. Thank you. Death is an enemy that was allowed in because God's trusted advisors over the earth rebelled. We were the Judas of the creation story. And that's where death is coming from. And it will be conquered. And the resurrection of Jesus said, hey, one guy has conquered it already. I am going to make all of you, of course, Paul did say those who follow Christ, I'm going to make all my followers conquer death. And at that day, death will have no more power. Because we, or Jesus saying, we (laughs) unleashed everybody from it. And now we can celebrate the kingdom as it's always meant to be. Forever and ever and ever. So that's the beautiful news. That's what Paul has to say immediately to the deniers. Well, we don't really know about the nature of resurrection. Cool, but is it going to be bodily? Well, yes, it is because Jesus rose bodily. So therefore we will raise bodily. Our faith is dependent upon this and death. Death ravishes the body. Resurrection conquers death. This is what Paul has to say. This is why it matters. Now, he's going to address more specifically the question, um, what is the nature of the resurrection, in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Now, I don't think, and a lot of my commentators didn't think that that's more, that's not an answer of possibility or a question of possibility. How is it possible that the dead are raised? It seems like we're past that point right now. The question is more like, in what manner, that's the question, how, in what manner are the dead raised? What does that look like? How does that work? That's what Paul wants to talk about now. So this is where he gets much more um, specific on the fact that this is a physical resurrection 
So he's going to use three pictures here. The first is a seed. So let's go ahead and look at it in verse 35. So someone will ask, how are the dead raised? In what manner? With what kind of body do they come? (laughs) Now, you might think, that's a good question. And this is where you feel stupid now. Because Paul says, you foolish person. Like, oh, I wanted to know the answer. (laughs) What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So stop there. So the idea of seed is, okay, you plant a seed, you got this little, little, little tiny thing, right? Some of us eat them, some of us plant them, some of us carve pumpkins and throw them out, whatever. Whatever you do with them, um, we've seen seeds. And they're, they're very insignificant. And, and you can't imagine just by looking at it that this pumpkin seed turns into a big orange plump round thing. Or that this apple seed turns into a tall tree with golden or red apples hanging from it. Like, you can't possibly imagine that just by looking at the seed. Now, what the seed has to do is it is buried. Jesus uses this idea of himself in John. He says that uh, the seed is buried and it there dies in the ground. And through its death, the seed becomes a plant. A new life comes out of that death. And it grows out and it comes out of the ground and it then begins to bear fruit and it becomes um, a plant. Now, Jesus used that as a picture of himself. Paul picks up on it, and um, he now uses that as an illustration of what our resurrection bodies will look like. Okay, so at the moment, we're like a seed. Imagine your body is a seed. You're going to (laughs) die. Thanks. But you will have a new body. What it looks like is is as infathomable as the difference between a seed and what it becomes. But look, the idea here is not discontinuity. Okay, it's not that you throw a seed in the ground here and then something over here springs up. No, what springs up comes out of the seed itself. There's a continuity that what it becomes came out of what it was. So that there's a continuity, Paul's pointing out, between our present bodies and our future bodies. So it's not necessarily like God takes you now when you die, discards it and says, let's just, I could do totally do better than that. No, God is more like saying, um, okay, good, you use your body well. Um, now it's time to take out the problems that death had brought to it and the curse and the fall of the world, and let's improve the body. Let's now make it everything that it can become. So it's not discarding it and making a new one. It's resurrecting it. It's, it's, it's making a new creation out of it. And by the way, that, that's, the idea, oops, that's the idea, excuse me, that's the idea of resurrection, Death is decreation. God made a world, and death is dismantling it. Resurrection is recreation. So what death has decreated, resurrection recreates. Fortunately, there's no cap on resurrection's work. It keeps going and sort of does a little better than what was before. And it keeps working, and it keeps building, and it keeps creating. That's where we're going. So like a seed that starts growing um, our bodies have, our future bodies will have a continuity with our old bodies. Was, they, we will be something that comes out of that and be much more fruitful than we are now. 
So he uses the idea of a seed. Now he's going to use the idea of more nature. And what his point here, as we're going to read it, you'll see, is, look, we're already used to the idea of different types of bodies. So why is it impossible that you will have a different kind of body? Why is that impossible? So he's going to use this example in verse 39. For not all flesh, read body, is the same. For there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. God has no limit to his inventiveness here. Uh, Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. Now, verse 42. So that was the seed illustration that it's very much possible. You know, just look at nature, look at seeds. They develop a new body. And it's better than it was before. You will too. Now, verse 42. um, This one is going to, it's a little confusing at first, but it's very simple. Verse 42. So So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, right? Seed, it's perishable. Um, What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, It is raised in glory. So look, our present bodies, that's one thing. But then he's talking about what your future body will be like. Dishonorable, uh, perishable, imperishable, full of glory. So the contrast between this body and the next body. It is sown in weakness, verse 43. It is raised in power, verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, what? Okay, so you're following me, right? So far we've said Paul's arg- his, his whole the whole biblical theology is that God cares about physicalness. His idea isn't to, to um, eradicate it and make everything spiritual. It's to redeem, to fix the physicalness. But now all of a sudden, in verse 44, we read that our present bodies are so natural... They will be raised spiritual. So now all of a sudden, it seems like we're contradicting ourselves here. That, okay, so cool. Your natural physical body right now, yeah, it's going to be a spiritual body later. No more physical. That's what it could seem like it's saying. But all you need to do is realize here that Paul is not saying that and that our translations are a little iffy here when we're translating the Greek, okay? Let me read to you the Jerusalem Bible, and this might give you a concept of what's going on here. The Jerusalem Bible reads verse 44 like this. When it is sown, it embodies the soul. When it is raised, it embodies the spirit. So verse 44, again in the ESV, it is sown a natural body. That word natural... um, it, it has a connotation of soul, actually. And a lot of translators are like, well, what do you do? A soul body? We don't have soul bodies, but our bodies have a soul. So they just translate it natural. Um, and then there's a spiritual body. But so the Jerusalem Bible captures the idea that what happens is that the soul is embodied now. In the future, the spirit will be embodied. And so what happens is that we're not talking about the 
the form of our bodies, Paul's not saying your present body is natural and physical and your future body will be unphysical and spiritual. It's not a comparison of form. It's a comparison of function. And hopefully this, this brings it all together for you. It's a comparison of function. Presently, our bodies function in the natural realm. And if they're driven by anything, it's our soul. And our souls are sick and they crave sick things. And so our body does things like that. That's the natural body. It functions that way. But the next body, the resurrected body, will function by the spirit. It will be driven by the spirit. And the spirit will hunger after the things of God. And the spirit will be like God. It will hunger for that. It will be driven by the spirit. And so, again, Paul's not comparing the form. Like, okay, well, there was this physical stuff, but now there's going to be the true unphysical and spiritual stuff. It's no. This body was driven by decaying, dying, cursed, natural things. This body, a still physical body, will be driven by spiritual godly things. That's the idea. Does it make sense? If, let's put it this another way. Um, every time I want my phone as an illustration, I don't have it. But okay. So you use a phone or a computer or an iPad, some sort of technical technology, some sort of device. Here's an iPad. I won't move it, Richard. Don't worry. Um, but on these, we have what are called operating systems, right? And um, some of us may not have all the super techno technological stuff, but you have maybe a desktop at home. And um, what happens, though, with a lot of the newer machines is that you need constant updates. They're always sending you updates to fix the operating system. You know, there's a bug here. There's a problem there. This update fixes this. We've squashed several bugs. Now you can do this. Now it won't crash when you do that. And sometimes they do an overhaul. The whole operating system changes. It's like, we got a new, better way of using the computer. Did any of you, any of you use Windows users get really frustrated when they went to the newer Windows operating system? I can imagine. I don't use it, but I can imagine how frustrating that would be. It was like, it was not just improved. It was like here, let's just throw it all out and start over. And like, what? I don't understand anything anymore. Um, yeah, operating systems, right? So look, your computer is the same thing. It's the operating system inside that changes. So that what's driving the functions of your machine are now new. And ideally, <laughs> you have a perfect operating system that doesn't crash, that's hack-free, um, nobody can hack it. Uh, you know, it doesn't have any problems, right? It has no bugs. It works. It has perfect memory. It's fast and efficient. It's user-friendly, ideally, right? But that's what Paul's talking about here. Of course, I'm using modern language to get this across. He's talking about not the form or the structure of the human person, okay? We're still going to have physical bodies. What's changing is the operating system, so to speak, is that this one was full of bugs, uh, malicious uh, viruses have hacked it, and that's the problem. We have glitches, we get angry, we crash, we don't, <laughs> we crash. <laughs> we don't work properly all the time, our memories run out, we sometimes don't have enough, we're not fast enough, you know, all those things. That's us. But in the resurrection, God has given us humanity 2.0. This is, or if you're an Android user, it's like humanity jelly bean or something. Um, this is the new human, and this one is the operating system of the future. This is the operating system that doesn't crash. 
And this is the way you were meant to function. So, again, it's not referring to, okay, the physical body is a mistake. Let's just do a spiritual floating thing. No, it's body, but body re-energized by a new operating system. It's operated by the Spirit of God. So that's, or a much simpler illustration, just imagine a brand new car and they say, okay, once upon a time you use fuel, you can run out of fuel, you need to oil your engine, or it goes bad. But we, we made a new car that runs on this new stuff, and it never runs out, and it never wears out. It's something like that, maybe. So that's the idea here. So when he says that our new bodies are spiritual bodies, it doesn't mean anti-physical. It means the stuff they run on, the stuff that drives them is better. That's the idea. So now he continues, and he's, he's going to keep this idea, and he's going to use Adam now as an example. So we come back to Adam. Verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So there we see... And this is this has just made the Bible so much fun. Paul's one little phrase here, the last Adam. Because all of a sudden, whoa, Jesus was an Adam. Adam version one was given a world in which he messed up. But Jesus comes as an Adam version two. He's given a world in which he dies for and cleans up. And this is Paul's idea. You can go on. You can do so many. We could do a whole Bible college class on that phrase, the last Adam. And I'm not kidding. I'm not saying that. I'm like, oh, you guys won't make me back it up. No, you really, really could. Um, the comparisons. So now verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man. So, you know, Adam, one version one, then version two. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a process there. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. Verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, and we feel it, right? We've borne that image. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven in the resurrection. That's the body we take on. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, talk about that when Jesus comes, we shall receive bodies like his. He's the prototype, the first made, and then we are the, what the factory produces after that, so to speak. So if you want to know what it looks, he's our, he's our example. He's our image. A body that dwells in heaven now, but also walked on earth and ate fish with the disciples and people touched him. This is a body fit for heaven and earth. We presently are only fit for earth. But the resurrected body is fit for both. And that's the beautiful hybrid that we are walking into at the end of time. All right. So in verse 50, now he's, he's summing it all up. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit, those are Paul's terms for temporary existence, right? Blood speaks of you're very temporary. You lose your blood, you die. Flesh, he always uses the word flesh. You see flesh all the time. Flesh is stuff of this age, 
Okay? So he's talking about the corruptible, the perishable, that can't enter into the imperishable. Well, we just said you need a body that is able to live in heaven and earth, one that can move on and make the difference. So that's the reason for resurrection. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot inherit heaven without receiving a new body. That's why Jesus was raised before he was ascended. Verse 51. So this was going to happen to us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that's death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so this is not evolutionary change. This is, this is God-enacted creative work change. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. See how he doesn't abandon the word body. He just says that the mortality of the body must become immortal. So it's a change in the body that has to be fit for the new creation God's making. Um, Then shall, shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? A very um, poetic combination of passages Paul puts together. Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, 14. That's what the, that section is a collection of quotes. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, now, you've been taught before, have you not? That when you read therefore, you must ask what it is therefore. And more often than not, 100% of the time, therefore means in light of everything that was just said, understand this so he says therefore in light of what you just learned that god is not giving up on what he's made but he is going to bring in the resurrection of our bodies in light of knowing this now that it is a physical resurrection my beloved brothers be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So, what does it mean that we study this tedious, <laughs> waiting through every verse of Paul here in the resurrection? Does it mean, okay, good, we got the right theology now. We're, we're the chosen ones. We're good to go. Bring it on, other losers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Bring it on. Like, is, is that the purpose of this? Is this just simply an intellectual exercise? Is this just to say, well, I mean, it's in 1 Corinthians, so we had to cover it. I mean, what, what is the purpose of this discussion, this very long message? Like, what is the purpose of this? The purpose is, yes, so you can understand where you're going and what your hope is. But most importantly, verse 58 is Paul's conclusion to the whole matter. So what does all this matter, guys? What does all this matter, brothers and sisters? In light of all this, it means that we can be immovable. We can be steadfast and always abound in the work of the Lord. 
It means that our work is not in vain. It means that as our bodies are not in vain because they will be resurrected into new and better bodies, like a seed that turns into this, it means that our work here is not in vain because God's not going to discard what we're doing for him, but our work, in a sense, is carrying over with our bodies. It's as if our work itself is being resurrected, as if it's moving on with us. It's not in vain. He said, our faith isn't in vain because of the resurrection. Your work is not in vain because of the resurrection. And that's why if, if, if there is no resurrection, then our work for God doesn't matter at all. And Paul says, we are the most miserable if all we have is hope in this life. Because what? Okay, so we are, there are people being martyred in other nations. There is Christianity that's being persecuted. We have the daily struggle. Yes, struggle, because by default, we want to walk away from God. But we have the struggle of saying, I am going to choose to pray today and read my Bible. I'm going to commit myself to him every single day. I'm going to try, last week's message, I'm going to practice the language of heaven and love my neighbor, even the person I don't like. If all of this goes nowhere, it is a pity that we live this way because it is a hard life sometimes. But the work is going to reap a harvest. What we do today is like seeds that we are sowing. And here's my question. Are we sowing seeds? Are we laboring in the Lord this is not, notice Paul is not saying labor for God so that you can get to heaven. That's not the theology here at all. It's all God's work. But now he's saying, what are you taking with you into eternity? If there is a resurrection of our bodies, then what we do with them now matters. So what are you sowing? What will grow up out of that? It's amazing how much people do for God that is never exalted, never noticed, never glorified. Those silent acts of love, those silent cares, the silent sacrifices. What, is all that a waste? Do you not know that in every little act we're sowing seed? And we may never see it grow up. We may never see the fruit of our labor. But in the resurrection... We will. In the resurrection, that may be the most beautiful thing we'll ever see. I I don't know. Obviously, Jesus will be, but. That's what Paul closes this with, is the encouragement of don't give up. Be steadfast, immovable, continue laboring because your work is not in vain. Keep sowing the seed. Whether you see fruit or not, that doesn't matter. God determines when it grows and you'll see it in the end. Keep sowing the seed. I will close with this verse, Galatians 6, 9. I'll I'll read it to you. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in the due season we will reap if we do not give up. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your work is not in vain. Keep going. There is a rest. There is a resurrection in the end.